This Friday will be the 449th anniversary of the Edict of Torda. Now, unless you're a UU history nerd, and I certainly encourage that if you're so inclined, but unless you, unless you are, you probably haven't heard of the Edict of Torda, but it is a fascinating and significant part of our movement. John Sigismund of Transylvania was history's first and only Unitarian king. And on January 13th, 1568, at a time when religious dissenters in many areas actually not far from there were being killed, were being persecuted, were being tortured in some cases, um, John Sigismund passed a landmark act of religious tolerance and freedom of conscience called the Edict of Torah, right? Uh, in stark contrast, the monarchs who sought to impose religious beliefs or religious tests on their subject, Sigismund instead affirmed the freedom of both congregations and ministers. That congregations were free to hire a preacher whose teachings they actually approved of and wanted to hear about, as opposed to having someone sent to them to tell them what to believe. And that ministers were free to preach based on their own best understandings of the truth. Now, they could be fired from that congregation if they didn't like what they were hearing, but they couldn't then be imprisoned or killed or fined for it. The edict concluded, therefore, none of the superintendents or others shall abuse the preachers, nor shall one be reviled but for his religion by anyone. And so our proximity to this anniversary felt like an auspicious time to reflect a little bit about what does um, religious freedom and conscience look like in our time. And I may actually take uh, the next few anniversaries of the Edict of Torda to explore a few different angles on this issue. Uh, In addition to this being near the anniversary of a significant milestone in the history of religious toleration, I'm also aware that we're less than two weeks away from the inauguration of Donald Trump as the next president of the United States, someone who has not been a champion for religious toleration so far. Instead, it's more been a scapegoating of religious minorities in this country. So as we reflect on religious toleration, I also want to draw some um, connections between some of the historical factors that um, have contributed to Trump's unexpected victory and maybe kind of a a factor in the coming um, years. And on the subject of religious freedom, I don't have time to rewind the clock all the way back to the late 18th century to talk the full details of the founding of this country. I think you all would get quite hungry before I was done doing that. Maybe I'll do that next year on the 450th anniversary of the Edict of Torda. But it actually may be equally or more instructive um, for right now to focus on changes in our country's religious landscape that have happened just in the past few decades. Let's begin in the middle of the 20th century, where, in contrast to Trump's small technicality of a victory in the Electoral College, in 1952, some of you will recall, Dwight Eisenhower won a much more decisive victory of 55% of the popular vote and a staggering 442 to 89 in the Electoral College. And he used that as a mandate in many ways to usher in a, a particular sort of religious revival in this country. And although we have examples of earlier presidents, we could look back, you know, mixing religion and politics. We could look just back to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was extremely adept at weaving in scriptural allusions into his speeches. You can look back at many of his speeches and be like, those were actually sermons for the the most part, for better or worse. 
But Eisenhower brought this previously unseen level of religious spectacle to the presidency that we hadn't seen before in the history of this country. After swearing in not on one Bible, but on two Bibles, for good measure, open to two different uh, verses, uh, Eisenhower's first official act as president, this was also quite unusual, was to take the oath of office and then to lead Americans in what he called a little prayer of my own that he had composed um, for that occasion. He was the first president to attend a national prayer breakfast, the first president to institute opening prayers at cabinet meetings. And it's sort of peculiar. There's a lot to say about Eisenhower and his background and relationship to his family that I don't have time to get into. But just to share with you just a little bit about this uh, kind of battle-tested five-star general who was then sort of now instituting all this religiosity, there's a famous story of him emerging out of a cabinet meeting that he had said, we're going to pray before all these cabinet meetings, coming out of the cabinet session and exclaiming, I mean, Jesus Christ, we forgot to pray. <laughs> so that's this sort of weird, there's a lot more to say about Eisenhower, but there's, uh, that gives you one example of the sort of spirit in which, the peculiar spirit in which that was all happening. Now, my intent this morning is not to hate on Eisenhower, instead to hate on Ike, right? No. Instead, I'm inviting you to see that some of the practices that he and others started quite recently, like these national prayer breakfasts, some people praying before cabinet meetings, all these things, are actually um, started quite recently or among many examples of how our civil religion as we know it today um, often dates back to not to the founding of this country, but to the mid-20th century. Um, To name just two other major examples, the phrase under God was not added to the Pledge of Allegiance until 1954. Um, In God We Trust was not added to our currency until 1956. But when you don't know that, it can just be easy to assume, oh, well, it's just always been that way since 1776, and that's very much not the case. Uh, So the truth is that this early post-World War II period witnessed a fairly remarkable shift in American religiosity. Uh, The 1950s do not represent the norm of how America always was prior to the countercultural revolutions of the 1960s. Instead, in many ways, it was the 1950s that were peculiar to what came before and to what has come since. Consider, for example, that the percentages of Americans who claimed membership in a church had been fairly low across the 19th century, though it had slowly increased from just 16% in 1850 to 36% in 1900. In the early days of the 20th century, the percentages that had been slowly rising plateaued, and so it was about 43% of Americans who claimed church membership in 1910 and still about 43% in 1940. But in that decade and a half after the Second World War, the percentages of Americans who belonged to a church or a synagogue suddenly soared, reaching 57% in 1950 and soaring, peaking at 69% at the end of that decade, which is an all-time high still for this country. And it's important to point out that the motivations behind those high levels of church membership were often more cultural and more social in why people were going to church than anything having to do with large numbers of people suddenly wanting to follow the radical teachings of Jesus, you know, really wanting to be more merciful and forgiving and selfless. That is not what we saw. We just saw people attending church. Uh, To give just one example among many, a Gallup poll in 1950 found that while 80% of people would tell pollsters that they believe the Bible, definitely the revealed word of God, only 47% could name even a single author of the Gospels. So real revealed word of God, but I don't actually read it. So interesting, um, uh, interesting insight. Uh, observation, maybe better. 
So now to point out some parallels between then and now, to start doing that, some of you may recall back in 2003, uh, this controversy related to Roy Moore. He was then the chief justice of the Alabama Supreme Court. He was removed from office for his decision to refuse to remove this extremely large and heavy granite monument of the Ten Commandments that he had installed in the Alabama Supreme Court building. Moore's obsession with this massive Ten Commandments monument seems a lot less random when you realize the historical context of many similar monuments that were inspired by the Cecil B. DeMille movie, The Ten Commandments, in the 1950s. That was one of this slew, all those religiously themed movies that seem like classics today, almost all of those came out in the 1950s or the early 1960s. And in the wake of the blockbuster success of The Ten Commandments, nearly 4,000 such Ten Commandments monuments were um, erected at various public locations across this country. And it's illuminating to see the way that that Roy Moore controversy in the early 21st century had deep echoes to the 1950s. Among other factors, nostalgia for the 1950s is about longing for a time before the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, which happened in the mid-60s. And we've seen that Voting Rights Act come under assault recently. It's about longing for a time before second wave feminism, before the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender rights movement started with the Stonewall Revolution. Revolt. It's about longing for a time when white Christian America was much more significantly culturally dominant as opposed to precariously dominant as it is today. Here's another example of a historical trend coming to fruition in our current cultural moment, the seeds of which were planted in the mid-20th century, though also in some ways before then. But starting in the 1940s, explicitly in opposition to FDR's New Deal, there was this increasingly concerted effort. So we have tons of pamphlets, tons of memos that all um, lay this out explicitly, saying we've got to, so conservative Christian ministers coming together with business leaders and saying we've got to oppose FDR's New Deal by proving that it is actually not Christianity that supports generosity to your neighbor and supporting the social compact. We've got to prove that Christianity and capitalism are the ones that go together. And one of the major players in that movement, though far from the only one, was Billy Graham. Now, I was raised to hold Billy Graham in particularly high esteem. I went to quite a few um, Billy, Gra- anyway, Billy Graham crusades. Anybody out there? All right, can I get a witness? Very good. Got a few out there. Uh, you know, that crusade, right, very problematic term um, for fairly obvious reasons. Uh, but it's troubling to look back as I've looked deeper into all that Billy Graham was about and, and see that the ways that he helped warp Christianity in favor of big business and against the labor movement. Uh, to limit myself to only one among many, many examples, we can look back to 1952 speeches and rallies um, and comments to the press that Billy Graham gave, such as, the Garden of Eden was a paradise with no union dues, no labor leaders, no snakes, and no diseases. So there we see him saying that, you know, stakes and diseases are being equated with union dues and labor leaders, saying that a truly Christian worker would not stoop to take unfair advantage of his employer by ganging up against him in a union. Uh, saying that strikes were inherently selfish and sinful and that the type of revival I'm calling for calls an employee to put in a full eight-hour work week. Now, keep in mind, that may seem relatively uncontroversial, but 
back then we're in the we're in the sweep of the labor movement in this country. You know, the labor movement, as the bumper stickers say, from the people who brought you the weekend, right? From the people who brought you an eight-hour workday and brought you child labor laws, as opposed to a 16-hour workday. So you know, we can look at the history of labor rights in this country, and and that's a time in this country when people were trying to push to a six-hour work week or even um, six-hour workday or even less to sort of give people leisure time. So to say to sort of push back and say eight-hour workday was explicitly anti-labor. There's a fairly direct line that can be traced from the seeds of conflating Christianity and capitalism um, by Billy Graham and others that began to gain speed in the mid-20th century and that have continued to snowball today. So that we get, for example, to deliver the prayer on Inauguration Day, we get Donald Trump choosing the prosperity gospel evangelist, Paula White. Now, if you don't know who Paula White is, Consider yourself lucky. Uh, the uh, Instead of following Jesus for prosperity gospel preachers, instead of following Jesus being about building beloved community and serving the least of these among us, the prosperity gospel, I don't know any other way to say it, but it is promoted by charlatans who conflate Christianity and capitalism to create this individualistic religion of financial prosperity through um, positive thinking. And the, the shadow side of that is that if you're not financially prospering, then you are blamed for that, and it's your fault and your um, faithlessness. Uh, so, uh, and as with all snake oil salesmen throughout history, it is rarely, the result is rarely the prosperity of the followers. You know, that tends to be what happens. Instead, it is the televangelist, the snake oil salesman, who ends up prospering through coercively taking increasing amounts of money from their followers. Indeed, Paula White is one among a cohort of televangelists who have been investigated in the past by the United States Senate, among others, for financial malfeasance, yet she'll be delivering our inaugural prayer. But I want to do more than expose negative trends this morning. I also want to, there are lots more to point out. I also want to highlight two among many examples of resistance and of resilience from the past few decades of what has it looked like by people who have successfully resisted um, overreach by the religious right. The first relates to a 1951 decision by the New York Board of Regents to compose a prayer that would be said by all students every day in all New York public schools. The plaintiffs in the lawsuit protesting the decision included three Jews, an ethical culturist, and a Unitarian. Because the board's president's name was um, William Vitale, uh, and because Stephen Engel was the plaintiff whose name among those five came first alphabetically, the case became known as Engel versus Vitale. Interestingly, not long before those New York lower courts began to hear that case of uh, Engel versus Vitelli, that they began preparing to rule on whether it was constitutional to have compulsory prayer in public schools, In God We Trust was being emblazoned on all the walls of the New York courtrooms as part of the spread of that motto in the 1950s. And even when something is fairly recent, once it's like in big letters on the wall of your courtroom, it can begin to see like, oh, it's always been there, right? So in a sign of how swiftly and thoroughly the religious revival of the 1950s had taken root, these judges in ruling on Engel versus Vitale in the lower New York courts cited changes that had occurred in their own recent memory as proof that the country's religious roots stretched back to time immemorial, when in fact they stretched back to like last week or last month or last year. 
1962, Ingle versus Vitale made it to the United States Supreme Court, and the majority opinion included a rigorously researched um, historical section that debunked all those unsubstantiated arguments from the lower courts. Uh, you know, trying to say that it tried to say that we have a clearly Christian religious heritage in this nation's history, as opposed to one that's more open for the free exercise of religion and against the establishment of religion. The Supreme Court ruled that the Regent's Prayer was unconstitutional. Here's a little bit of the language from that case. It is no part of the business of the government to compose official prayers for any group of American people to receive as part of a religious program led by the government. The prayer of each man is from his um, from his soul must be his and his alone. This is long before the 70s, so this is all um, patriarchal language. But if there's anything clear in the First Amendment, it is the right of the people to pray in their own way and to not be controlled by election re- results. Because this gets it's tricky in a nation as big as the United States. You know, often, like in upstate New York, the, these board of regents were making this decision, saying we should compose an official prayer because they were all Christians and they wanted, they were comfortable with this Christian prayer. But then you go to like. You know, Salt Lake City, and well, think about that. What about Christian, you know, Christians that you know that might be in Salt Lake City and not want to have a Mormon prayer, or in Hawaii, who you know, more than 51% Buddhist? I would be fine with a Buddhist prayer, but you know, that might not be up, you know, everyone's uh, favorite thing. So you have to think about how do we want to be together in a diverse public square. And it's a significant part of our UU history that a Unitarian in coalition with three Jews and an ethical culturist uh, were at the heart of this landmark case, protecting individual religious freedom and opposing religious coercion by our government. A second example is from the same time period. In 1949, a Pennsylvania legislature passed a statute mandating that all public school teachers um, must read at least 10 assigned verses each day, 10 new verses each day, from the Bible. And And they were explicitly forbidden from contextualizing. You just had to read the 10 verses, that was it. Uh, Ellery Shemp, a 16-year-old Unitarian in the Pennsylvania public schools, refused to stand for the ceremony and instead sat at his desk reading a copy of the Quran. Now, that wasn't because he was Muslim. That was because he was trying to show that he... That's a lot less controversial pre-9-11, but the... Um, was trying to show that he was interested in religions other than Christianity. And his parents enlisted the help of the American Civil Liberties Union and filed a lawsuit in 1958 on behalf of Ellery and his younger siblings. I don't actually know whether Ellery was named after our famous um, Unitarian ancestor in the 19th century, William Ellery Channing, but he, he may well have been. The Shemp said publicly that we hope this action will not be interpreted as an attack on religion or the Bible. We believe that random Bible reading and state control actually degrades religion. To us, religion is too precious, too important, and too personal to permit the state to meddle in it. Ellery added that the Bible passages read in class advanced a number of beliefs, including the divinity of Christ, the Immaculate Conception, the Trinity, and the existence of an anthropomorphic God, a God created and you know, that seemed very human, uh, that he did not hold as a Unitarian. In 1963, the Supreme Court heard that case of Abingdon School District versus Shemp, and the majority opinion concluded that the state is firmly committed to a position of neutrality in regard to religion, and that the First Amendment guarantees the right of every person to freely choose his religious course free from any compulsion by the state. 
Interestingly, whereas 1962's Engel versus Vitaly result, if you go back and look at headlines, people went wild. It was, you know, people were outraged that the Supreme Court was ruling against religion, against this sort of, uh, uh, so this public outcry from religious conservatives. Uh, in contrast, uh, in reaction to 1963's Shemp case, there was very little reaction. Seemingly embarrassed by overreaction to Engel, most major religious denominations had anticipated that a new ruling against Bible readings was coming down the pike, whether they liked it or not, and they just sort of made peace with it. Nevertheless, these landmark Supreme Court cases, they're part of the historic background for understanding these cultural battles that we continue to have today, such as, for example, you know, should one say in, in public, not in a religiously similar environment, in public should one say Merry Christmas or should one say the more neutral Happy Holidays? These same things are continuing to be played out, but we can be informed in understanding them better if we see some of the historical context and trends. Now, there's a lot more to say, but my point has been to invite us to become more aware of changes that have happened in quite recent U.S. history. In the words of the Princeton University historian Kevin Cruz, our public religion is in large measure, measure an invention of the modern era. The ceremonies and symbols that breathe life into this belief that is, in fact, false, actually, that we are one nation under God. We are not one nation under God. It's a lot more complicated than that. But the ceremonies and symbols that lead us to think that we might be were not, as many Americans believe, created along with the nation itself. Their parentage stems not from our founders, but from an era much closer to our own, the era of our parents or of our grandparents, depending on one's age. This fact need not diminish their importance. Fresh traditions can be more powerful than older ones that are adhered to out of habit. Nevertheless, we do violence to our past if we treat certain phrases, one nation under God, in God we trust. We do violence to our past if we treat those as sacred texts handed down from our nation's founding. Instead, we are better served, we are more honest, if we admit um, if we, and understand these utterances for what they are, which is political slogans. They speak not to the origins of our nation, but to a specific point in our not-too-distant past. Seeing how recently major shifts have happened can also embolden us to consider what major changes might we be part of bringing about in our own present day. We live in treacherous times, but there remain reasons for hope. When the pendulum swings too far in one direction, as, as it continues to swing, the energy for resistance and resilience continues to build more strongly. I returned late Friday night from a three-day conference at Meadville, Meadville Lombard Theological Seminary. It's our UU Identity School in Chicago. It was about this temperature there the entire time. Uh, the title of that conference was The Tilt to Global Authoritarianism, um, Religious Leadership and Shifting Power. And I'd like to conclude by sharing with you um, one quote from that conference that particularly um, resonated with me uh, for such a time as this. It's a short but profound poem by Adrian Rich. She writes, My heart is moved by all that I cannot save. So much has already been destroyed. But I have cast my lot with those who age after age perversely, with no extraordinary power, have chosen to reconstitute the world. I'll read it one more time. 
My heart is moved by all that I cannot save. So much has been destroyed. But I've cast my lot with those who age after age, perversely, with no extraordinary power, reconstitute the world. We sang earlier about a faith of the larger liberty, a liberty that isn't just for yourself, but is larger, that thinks about this bigger dynamic. We're going to sing now, with joy we claim the growing light. I'll share just a little bit more. There's a story, I've probably shared this with you before, of a um, man that was trapped on an island and he was uh, finally rescued. And when the rescuer said, before we you know, take you home, just show us a little bit, how did you, you, know, how did you survive out here? How did you kind of craft a life for yourself? And, and he said, they're just kind of showing him around and they came to one section of the island that had three structures pretty near each other. And he said, well, tell us about these. And he said, well, this is the one where I lived, where I had shelter, and I kind of wanted a separate space that would be for spirituality, for religion. So he's like, that, that's what this one is. And they said, well, well, there's a third one. He's like, oh, I don't like to talk about that. That's where I used to go to church. And when we, when we enter into these, to these discussions about religious liberty, they're often done in that spirit, a spirit of opposition, a spirit of woundedness, a place of threat, or even of scapegoating. Uh, so there's a, there's a famous phrase from, the, I believe it go, may go back to the 19th century with John Stuart Mill, his famous um, essay on liberty, very much worth revisiting and rereading, uh, that my uh, right to swing my fist uh, ends when it hits your face. Right, that that's, And that's that sort of classic liberalism, um, going back to the Enlightenment. Liberalism just meaning uh, freedom, right, from the Latin word liber. And that one's, but one's individual freedom, uh, it, it, you know, there, it starts to be lessened when it you know, hits your individual freedoms. So that there's a big difference between saying you can go to your you know, private religious community and worship in the way you see fit. And there's a difference um, I would invite you to consider when you get these cases like should a, uh, you know, if an LGBT couple wants a baker to bake a cake for their wedding, you know, is that violating the baker's um, perhaps conservative orthodoxy? Is that violating their religious liberty? And I would invite you to consider that the difference there is uh, the difference between, you know, worshiping privately in your community, however you want, and wanting to use your religious liberty to discriminate against other people, and that's where it enters into a gray zone or even um, potentially, I would say, an unconstitutional zone uh, when you want the government to impose your religion on other people as opposed to protecting everyone's diverse um, religious freedom. So the First Amendment you know, includes sort of two parts. The part of the First Amendment that um, um, relates to religion has both a free exercise clause and an establishment clause. So keeping that balance between a free exercise of religion and not making laws um, respecting the establishment of a, an official religion. Because there are other ways, it's been done very differently throughout history, which is to say, we're going to have an official religion and your tax dollars are going to support it. And if you don't like it, then you can contribute privately, but you're going to keep promoting the official religion. And that's not how the United States was founded. It was founded um, you know, out, of, out of this religious freedom for everyone by knowing that the only way you get freedom for yourself is to have freedom for every at least that's the only way you get it fairly right uh, so so as you think about that and as you think about the your controversies of these and others in the days ahead of how do we um navigate a conflicted public square 
you know, think for yourself, how do I proceed in love, love for myself and love for this other person and inviting that for everyone. So to continue your journey in love, to care for one another and care for this one earth, to do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love or peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. So live boldly and with thanksgiving. Go in peace.